Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Hey, welcome to another edition of Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and we have Goodwin Hannaford in the house today. The interview itself has a bit of history to it, as we are in one of the oldest buildings in York County, oldest in his town of Hollis. This one covers a ton of ground. Goodwin, a fantastic character on and off the racetrack, known for his legendary engines, he's a championship team owner, and if you've ever wondered why Goodwin didn't spend a lot of time driving, well, he answers that in stage number one. Also, how many people do you know worked on a car that Hugh Hefner totaled? That's right, Hugh Hefner, that Hugh Hefner. One of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is when stuff like that comes out. Yeah, Hugh Hefner's car. Why? Why? You, what? Not everybody does that? No, they don't. So this is a dandy of an episode, and thank you again for all your support to Main Vintage Race Car Association. The Open Trailer Podcast directly benefits Main Vintage Race Car Association. Preserving the history of racing in the state of Maine, please become a member for less than $2 a month. You can find information at mainvintagerace.org. That's mainvintagerace.org. Let's get to it now. Stage one of the Open Trailer Podcast with Goodwin Hannaford. Enjoy. With the Open Trailer Podcast, uh, one of the main reasons why we do this is to document the history of the pioneers, and it doesn't get more pioneer than sitting in the oldest house in Hollis, Maine, and this dates back. Goodwin, when does this house even come together? This house came together in eight, uh, 1763. So the house we're sitting in predates the revolution. Mm-hmm. How does this happen? I mean, um, being a, somewhat of a student of history, historical homes, historical building techniques, mm. building processes with wood, m- masonry, whatever, this house fascinated me the moment from the moment I saw it when I was 12 or 13 years old, loading hay into a haymow in the building out back here, the barn that has fallen down since. It fell down before I bought the place. So we're, we're sitting in a, in a house that predates the revolution. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that's that's simply correct. amazing. With somebody who uh, was very revolutionary in, in his own right, we have so much to unpack in this episode. <laughs> Joining me is uh, is Steve Pellerin. Uh, Goodwin Hannaford, you know, we've, we've heard about you. We've seen you from place to place, but we want to know your story. I want to know where you came from. I came across the river when I got smart. Yes. So you, the Saco River is what we're referencing. Right. Yeah. So right. you're originally from Bar Mills, Maine. That's right. Uh, a lot of people uh, want to know if you're tied to the famous Hannaford name. People know it as Hannaford Supermarket. That's today. my last name. And yes, back in the 1860s, my father's family and it, it was synonymous and they there was kind of a rift in the family and my father's father went to Gorham, Maine in the late 1800s, early 1900s and I'm not sure when right. but uh, sometime around there and 
Uh, he became, he was a butcher, and that's where my father came from, was Gorham. But you go in a completely different direction. You uh, you grew up here in Hollis, and you're fascinated with race cars. Where does the initial fascination come from? Phil Libby in the end of my street. At six years old, I was down to Phil Libby's house as much as I was at home, and he didn't object to me being around. Mm-hmm. And most people, you know, I was six at the time, and he was in his late teens, early 20s. He let me go down there and hang around down there. And then, of course, Sandy Atkinson moved up an eighth of a mile up the street and lived in the field directly across the street from where I was born and brought up. And it was a very easy job for me to get out of bed in the morning and run across the field and work over there in Sandy's garage on his race cars and play over there as a, as a kid mm. forever. You know, did did just, the Libby family and your family know each other? Yep. My mother and his mother were best of friends, and they were both civic leaders, both of them. In the in the community of Hollis, Buxton? In, in the Bar Mills. You don't have any brothers or sisters. No. So you're an only child, mm-hmm. and they, you kind of latch on to the Libby family. What initially fascinates you about the engine itself and what you later became so famous good for? good noise. The noise. It made good noise. And my father had a 1935 Ford flathead-powered V8 dump truck for his florist business. And consequently, the exhaust was always loud, rotted out, and rusted out. And it made good noise because flatheads made good noise. Yeah, yeah. Still do. For those who are listening out of uh, the Southern Maine area or outside of it, uh, Hollis Buxton Bar Mills, we know, is uh, is about 20 minutes as a crow flies from Beach Ridge, I would That's say. Correct. So could you actually hear the race cars at Beach Ridge from your house? Some nights in the summer when the air was just right, yes. And did that distant sound fascinate you and draw you in? Not so much as it did when I got to be 18 or 19 years old and they started using Chevrolet V8s at Beach Ridge. See, this was back in flatheads. Mm. You know, a, a flathead, maximum compression you can get out of one is eight and a half, nine to one. And I've tried harder and blown them up, so can't do any more than that. The, the do you remember the Do you remember the first times that you went to Beach Ridge? First time you went to the racetrack? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was probably in 1954, 55, something like that. It's been there for four or five years when I first went down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Beach Ridge, a lot of people think of the wild, wild west and that anybody could get into the pits and pit age restrictions are brand new. But they weren't at Beach Ridge. You could not no, get sir. in. You could not get in unless you were 18 or had a verified, proofed, uh, signature pad mm. from the town's clerk office as to your age, and then you could only get in if you were 15 or older. And 14 and younger, you couldn't. And or a man. Yeah, you had to be a man, too. And you seem like someone who, uh, despite, I think, your reputation, when you were young, you followed the rules because you had a very strict upbringing. I did, and it didn't always work. Yeah. <laughs> So can you can you describe the roles of your family? My mother was the epitome of a Victorian era fine lady in every respect. Mm-hmm. And she was and a civ- she was very strict with me and demanded that I respect her and my father mm-hmm. even though she didn't always agree with my father. She demanded me to respect my father, and it was a tough role to, to fulfill. And we talked about your father with uh, his business, but he also had another interest within education as well. Wasn't he the truant officer? Yeah. Yeah. 
so, that was just thrust upon him by people and some of his buddies in the town office that didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm trying to trying to paint the idea that you know, I mean, basically, you're growing up with the mom that you had as an only child with a father who was the truant officer. Mm-hmm. So you and a re- town constable, town constable too. Mm-hmm. Jeez, boy. And, and he was the civic def- civil defense director for the town of Buxton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he held a lot. He was road commissioner for a year. He held a lot of roles. But for someone who's known as as particular as they are, where did you where did you inherit that from? The the attention to detail because it's so crucial to your story and your successes on and off the racetrack. I had somebody when I was a real little kid, Tabby Eaton, tell me that if you can't do something right, don't even bother doing it. Hmm. And somehow that stuck with me from age five or six years old till today. How old are you now? 76. So you go to you go to the races and for the first time these motors that you've heard from 20 miles away are in your face and you're getting dirty because the track is all dirt as well. It didn't happen like that. Roger Littlefield was nice enough to allow me to go down to his garage where the race car was kept that belonged to Sandy Atkinson and several others. Roger was part owner. There was a whole bunch of them teamed up and built this race car. And it was an A-class for Beechridge, mm-hmm. which was the top class yep. in the in the 40s and 50s. Goodwin, they're still running flatheads at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was before Race Nell 600 Chrysler ever came in. It was all flathead V8s. Other people would try something else, but they wouldn't cut the mustard. You know, Wait a they minute. wouldn't make it. How would you know to have them try something else at that young age? How would you have the the foresight to say, well, why don't you guys go do this? Uh, I didn't. Hmm. What happened was they had George Libby, Phil Libby's older brother, oldest brother, do the machine work on a flathead motor block, crank, whatnot. Then they wanted to balance it because Roger, I'd been beating on him because I'd been reading Hot Rod magazine since I was six years old. I'd go to the newsstand and take my lawnmower money and buy a Hot Rod magazine. I'd been reading about balancing and blueprinting. And there was a guy down in Massachusetts somewhere, Beverly. His name was Paul Linskog. And I had heard that he was as good as he was in New England for balancing, particularly flathead balance, uh, flathead VH. And I convinced Roger Littlefield and Sandy Atkinson to take that motor down there at age 10 or 11. And by God, they did. And they had Paul Linskog balance that motor. And this took a period of two years for them to save up the money to, first of all, buy the components that I had looked up in Hot Rod magazines. Secondly, to have the machine work done the way that I had read about. Mm. I feasted on this information. And I think I understood it. Mm. At what age again? Ten. Ten years old. Nine. Understanding motors like that. And that's where that information all came from with those little tiny rotting and restyling, hot rotting, popular hot rotting, on and on and on. There were all kinds of newsstand quality, very poor quality magazines, but the technical information was unbelievable. You're at a young age and impressionable and going to the races, and a lot of people... Uh, still to this day, they'll go to the racetrack once or twice and they'll say, I want to do that. I want to be the driver. I want to be the jockey. Did this happen to you? It didn't. Why not? I wanted to build the engine. I didn't give a damn about driving it. Never did. Really? Nope. Wow. 
I wanted to make that engine make that kind of noise and be faster and more powerful than anybody else's. And it still motivates me today. <laughs> I can tell. That's amazing. Big time. Right now, as blind as I am and as sick as I am with cancer, I'm building a hell of a motor up here that's going to Georgia Monday or Tuesday of next week. Can you tell me about that motor? It's a motor that is a very, very restricted motor. It's much more restricted than the Beechridge common motors today. Mm-hmm. Uh, those motors are good for 400, 425 horsepower. If this one makes for uh, 385, 390, it'll be a miracle. Have you ever worked on a crate engine? Yes. You don't like them? You hate the crate? Yeah, because of what it's done for racing. Yeah. What do you it think? has ruined racing. It's taken all of the motivation behind people like myself that have got an interest, taken it away. You don't have that option anymore, period. Mm-hmm. Nope. Unless you sneak. Unless you cheat. Fortunately, I'm damn good at it. Steve, uh, who I'm, I'm real psyched to have along in, in this ride. So uh, am I. Yeah, because he's the one who inducted you into the Hall of Fame that yes, night, too. Yes, And I, every once in a while, I'll drag out my Hall of Fame book and read his speech that he gave. And I, to this day, I stand and say, who is that man he's talking about? Mm. Well, that you, was my reaction that night, wasn't it, Dan? I hate to tell you this, but you're asking me to do something that's impossible for me to talk about myself because I don't do that. Well, good when you bring up an excellent point of um, you, you don't want to talk about yourself. I didn't have a hard time finding your place. All I had to do was just look at the license, your, your wife's license plate to know, well, this is the house. But you have a pretty, I mean, actually, we'll get to it later, but world-renowned shop here in in Buxton, Maine. Hollis. 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 Sorry, Jesus, I'm going to screw this I, up. Jesus, Next. I cannot swim back across the river and yeah. I won't cross the bridge. <laughs> okay. In Hollis, but you don't have a sign. No, how, how never do have pe- one. How do people find you? Word of mouth. Word of mouth. A the business only kind of advertisement that is worth what you pay for it is free advertisement that you get by good word from the people that are your customers. Period. I want to point out that I just want to add one thing. I know you never advertised, Goodwin, but, you know, as a fan, we're all all forever connected by the great races we've seen in, in, you know, the past few decades. Yeah, that's for sure. It was always had to be a little bit of satisfaction when you went into victory lane, whether it was with Homer and Jerry or so many of the others, and there on the hood or on the firewall, Mowed by Hannaford. Yeah. Yeah. That was my standard yep. advertisement. If, if they, people would ask me if I wanted something. No, I don't want anything. Just pay me. Yeah. And they did. They paid me well to do it. But by the same, well, we want to put something on the race car. All right. Just mowed by Hannaford somewhere. And that's all I ever asked for. And then it was after they had asked me about it. And is that not true? Correct. People were building the flatheads. At this point, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, you you put together the a flathead that was balanced for Sandy. Yeah, and you got that going, and and that that motor took two years for them to to get done because of the expense of it. It's expensive to buy the pieces. It's expensive to help Paul Inskog back then balance your engine. You know, today engine balancing is a lot more expensive than that was then, but it's also a lot faster. Back then, there was a lot less technology available with digital scales and all this stuff. And, and Goodwin, how did that motor for Sandy make out? 
<laughs> First time he ever ran it, he won. On that hutch right there. And by the way, that is a hutch that I built for her. For Anne, your wife. Yeah. Who's with us. Yeah. Right on the bottom is an O-house set of scales. Yeah. I've balanced a good many motors on that kitchen table on those scales right here. Racing motors in this kitchen. Yes, sir. And part, you know, part part of the crew at that time, Goodwin mentioned, was Roger Littlefield. And because Roger paid attention, and he had a bomber, a gutter bomber later on. Yep. For a guy named Calvin Reynolds. Long before the motorcycle stuff. Yeah. Cool Cal, B-Class 78. And Goodwin figured out how to make this revolutionary manifold, a tall intake manifold for a six-cylinder. I, I built the first six or eight of them myself. I built Ford, Chevrolet, Mopas. I built the intakes. Can I took a casting and cut it all up and carved up some pieces of steel and walled them all together. Well, by God, did they make some power, didn't they? It raised the carburetor up, Andy. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell me about the first time that you met you and Cal Reynolds hooked up? Oh, I'd known Calvin Reynolds since I was in grammar school and he was in high school. And I watched him play basketball. And I, I'll tell you, that was like uh, uh, a teddy bear talking to Goofy. <laughs> you know, because okay. he was all legs and, and torso. And I was short and not awfully tall and not awfully rugged. But mm. anyway, uh, we, Calvin and I got along very well, still do. He's a very good friend. How does this relationship foster into a winning combination because calvin decided he was after he had the sports center and the, the uh, motorcycle shop and so forth he decided he was going to go back to racing he had hooked up with roger littlefield and because roger was my hero he was my hero of heroes because he did what i wanted to be doing roger littlefield taught me how to be a man and thank god for him hmm Anyway. Along the way, talking about the motor, um, none of these have uh, fuel injection. No. None of these motors do. But fuel injection comes in along the way, and you play a major role in fuel injection and the development of it. And I didn't think of it at the time at all. You know, it didn't impress me a bit. How does this technology even come to light? Because I am always fascinated why and how anybody can make more power than I'm making with my motors. And Chevrolet did that in the in the 50s with their fuel injection system. They weren't really on the map until the 50s, were That's they? That's correct. Yeah. 1955 with the first small block, 265. It was 50's first small block and the first injected motor was 57. And from there to 65, I'll tell you, I had a ball. Race, Race now. now. Race, Race now. now. Galen Wilson. No, no. Different race now. Okay, different race. Completely different race now. Uh, This now was a farmer from Buxton. And he lived right up above the street from me. And when I was a little kid, he had the guy, he was the guy that had the 51 Chevrolet Fastback. Remember 51 Chevrolet Fastback? 51 and 2? He had one with an, oh my God, six owner in it. And it sounded different than anything I'd ever heard in my life. And I traipsed around until I finally met him and introduced myself at age 12 and said, why does that sound different than all the other 51 Chevrolets that I've ever seen? And he opened the hood and he showed me. He had 
a split manifold on the exhaust so that there were two pipes out of the side of that motor for dual exhaust right from the motor back. He had three single barrel carburetors on it, spaced equally between cylinders, so two cab uh, one carburetor ran two cylinders, and he had built all that himself. And I said, this by guy is sharp. Mm. And I studied all I could about race now. Tell me the story of fuel injection as well, too. All right, fuel injection is a completely different situation that you depend on a pressure, high pressure pump to pressurize the gasoline and spray it through a nozzle to more thoroughly atomize it to take more advantage of the potential energy in the fuel. That's all it is. And it's very simple. <laughs> to <And> you. <laughs> no, yeah. it's very, very simple. Right. If you can figure out a teapot and why the coffee, coffee percolator perks, you can figure out how fuel injection works very easily. Hmm. It's very, very simple. Otherwise, I couldn't understand it. But in order to understand it, you've got to have a, a kind of a concept of why things operate from this point to this point. And if you don't, you're not going to get it. So I kept working with it, working with it, and working with it, and figured out what not only does Duntov have a good idea with this fuel injection system, back when he was still in Germany, uh, he got GM to sponsor all of his engineering and all of his mistakes until he got it right, and that was in 1957. And I'm telling you, from there until they gave up on it in 1965, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, there was nothing better on the market from a manufacturer's standpoint than those fuel injection systems. They superior gas mileage, it was not uncommon for me Hmm. A dubber out here in the country to get 27, 28, 29 miles per gallon out of a 375 horsepower 327. The fuel, the fuel injection was so superior because it atomized the fuel, broke it down into a form that would burn and burn efficiently. You know, if they could do the same thing with a stupid oil burner, we would not be in the energy crisis we're in today. That's all it is, is atomizing fuel accurately. And that's what Dunhoff did. How did you become so renowned with this? How does GM find you? How do you become the level? I was sitting in my office at Cape Elizabeth High School. I had a, my own private office over there. I was sitting in there having a cup of coffee and a cigarette, I'm sure, because I was smoking heavily then. And uh, the phone rang. And I picked it up and I said, Hello. Is this Goodwin Hannaford? And I said, yes, it is. He said, we've been trying to get you for quite a while now. And I said, well, I've been right here. Yeah. And he said, where is here? And I said, you've reached Cape Elizabeth High School, Industrial Arts Department. He says, you're an Industrial Arts teacher? And I said, well, among other things, yeah. And uh, he said, well, this is Rochester Products Division in Rochester, New York. And he introduced himself and told me who he was. And he says, we understand that you do a little experimentation and a little bit of work with our fuel injection products back in the 50s and early 60s. And of course, they were long out of production then. This was up in the 81, 82, 83, along through there. He says, uh, you mind talking with me for a minute? And I said, well, I'll call you back after I get out of school. I said, but right now I've got to go to a class. I said, my, my, my uh, 
my physics class. And he said, you, I thought you taught industrial arts. I says, I do. <laughs> I says, but I've got a physics class that I teach upstairs. Yeah. I've got a math class that I teach upstairs. What kind of math? Trig. And he says, what? And I says, yeah. And on and on. He started talking and started pumping me for what I had done. So then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I received a book that thick, right full of nothing but accolades of things that I had done to fuel injection systems. So how did how did they get to know you, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Reputation, to- word of mouth. It's all word of mouth. Yeah, exactly. Goodwin's efforts got noticed. Uh, you know, the, the hot rodding scene in New England in the early 60s was, was just phenomenal. And a guy named uh, Stu Sandler, he, there was a lot of contacts there. Yeah. They, they hooked you up with people like, uh, uh, you got your name known around Offenhauser, mm-hmm. Eidelbrock. Eidelbrock. Crower Cams. So Dave and Bruce Grauer became one-to-one people that I would fight with routinely, and yet their product was as good as it was on the market. These uh, speed vendors that that sold things like that, and the name Goodwin Hannaford circulated throughout those halls, and it became repeated time and time again. And pretty soon it got associated with speed and fuel injection and other tricks, and people kept turning to Goodwin, turning to Goodwin, and trying to follow his footsteps and the path that he laid out with different techniques mm. and pretty soon a path got into woven and the name got very well known. Goodwin was one of the five people that were um, working on, on the fuel injection? No, I didn't. I worked on fuel injection for private individuals. I never worked for Chevrolet. Okay. Chevrolet Rochester Products Division called me and asked if they could use my name and use me as someone that would be willing to spend some time with people on the telephone trying to get them through their problems with their injection products, their fuel injection products. I never worked for Chevrolet. How did you get into the restoration of Corvettes? People started having Corvette motors built by me for their Corvettes. And they knew that I was doing injection work on the 57 to 65 Corvettes, and there's a lot of those around still. And they're highly prized, and they're very, very uh, expensive cars. And I did a lot of them. I did a ton of them, didn't I, Ann? What was the uh, the most famous Corvette that you worked on? Can you remember? Oh, God. Are you familiar with Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hefner had... A 1965 Shelby American. Wow. With the 289 Ford Oh My God motor. And it crashed and burned in 1965 at the hands of the original owner. And it was purchased by a little dealership up here in uh, Auburn. It was imported from England down south, went 300 miles and... Wrecked. Wrecked. Totaled it. And he says, yeah, I can fix it. And they called me and asked me if I would delve into that uh, 289. And I said, 289 to 289. Geez, I didn't realize what I was getting into. This was an honest-to-God, real honest-to-God Carol Shelby 289 made for that Mustang. Numbers, everything on it was correct. And I got the job of rebuilding it and freshening it and getting it tuned in the car uh, for this guy up in 
Turner, uh, Auburn actually, he just this side of Turner. I had seen them at Portland Motor Sales in the fall of 64 when they introduced them. I'd seen them, mm-hmm. but most people never have even gotten in their lives to see an honest-to-God, real Shelby directly from England. Throughout the uh, throughout the 60s and 70s, Steve, this is when the the engine uh, the engine reputation really is is sealed. Goodwin had, had done several motors at that point, but I don't know. But at least to me, as a kid on the fence back then. Uh, I, I certainly began to see him in Victory Lane at Oxford Plains, and the you know to me the breakout motor came with the Playboy Racing Team with Jerry Seavey and and the J two. Where did that name come from? That Playboy Racing while we're at it. Oh, he was a key holding member of the Playboy Club. He visited Boston once a week. And that was broadcast to be like the Playboy racing, like the race announcer would talk about this. <laughs> well, yeah, they had it on all their cars. They had it on every one of their cars with a, you know, a Playboy Club Playboy on mm-hmm. the door of each car. My wife was not at all impressed with any of that. I don't think you're... No, my, was my mother. Yeah. But that's all right. So uh, while we mention your wife in the background, you may hear um, you know someone milling about. That's uh, that's Goodwin's current wife, Anna uh, Annaford. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Anne Hannaford. Yeah. Uh, some people have called you worse than that. Yeah, yeah. So now this isn't. We're we're not speaking of you. Your first wife was dead set against you driving or being involved with racing. She wanted no involvement because she couldn't compete. This is a rookie question. Were female drivers not allowed to compete at Beach? That's correct. Okay, the I didn't know. They weren't even allowed in the pits. The, Period. The infamous sign. Yes, I've yeah. seen it or I've heard about it. Bar room for men only. Mm-hmm. Without digging up too much, is that one of the reasons why you never drove? No. No, you just you still just did not want to compete. You wanted you got more joy from watching people succeed with your motors. After I have stood on the throttle in one of my motors down the straightaway. 25, 30 times, I don't care if I never do it again. As long as each time I do something innovative and develop a new part that's going to make more power, then I do want to try it out. And unfortunately, I'm so feeble and old now that I can't. But this is still working. That's the sad part because I can't slow this down. Your brain. Drives me away, keeps me awake a good many nights of things that I've designed that I've never built. Wow. I'm going to read off a couple of names to you, and you just tell me uh, what they mean to you. Yep. These are people that won in your in your equipment. Bob Babb. This is <laughs> Bob and his family are a wonderful family, and I enjoyed building them for me, mm-hmm. uh, allowing me to offer them the the products that I did, and they won a lot of shows with them. Dick McCabe. Dick McCabe is one of the greatest that I ever worked with. How did you guys work together? Pretty good. I mean, just straight customer? uh, No, beyond that. No. When he first came here, he was driving for his father, and he had a uh, 37 Chevy Coupe, and he said, I want you to make me a motor. That's just how he put it. I said, I can do that. What year is this? This was, what was it, Steve? 1968. Yep, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and he wanted me to make him a six-cylinder after I'd had a little bit of success with some other six-cylinders down there, and I, I made a, a bunch of motors for Dick McCabe, not only that six-cylinder, but uh, others. Hmm. Uh, Dick Walstenhume. I never once built a motor for Dick Walstenhume. Really? Nope. I wanted to, because I liked him. I got along fine with him. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't spend the money. That's Dick. Hmm. Am I right? He has said publicly, with a microphone in his front of hand, addressing all the people at the crowd at Beach Ridge when he was king. Yes. I'd give anything to have one of Hannaford's motors. Would he come up here and buy one? No. But he'd come up here, pick my brain, and <laughs> talk with me, and... and and I think the world of Dick and Phyllis Walsingham yes. to this day. They're great people. Yeah. Um, you know what I say when someone says, I want to pick your brain, you know, that, that means they want information for free. I say that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be 25 bucks an hour <laughs> minimum. You couldn't buy me for that. No, I know. <laughs> I'm not as smart as you. <laughs> this is a tiered program, good one. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I don't think of myself in those terms at all. How about Albert Hammond? Albert Hammond is one of my very best friends. Hmm. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Very good friend. And I was so proud when he came to me and wanted one of my engines. Big moment in my career. Would you say that's the biggest one? Because that's an interesting no. question. No. Where, well, what is it then? The moment where, where someone who you admired came up to you knowing that you're widely admired throughout the pits and said, I want your stuff. I've had a lot of them. Hmm. When when Bob Babb came to me himself and wanted one of my engines, that was big because he had a reputation of being a good, honest family man. He had a reputation of doing things right. His equipment was always spotless and clean, and so was his crew. And those things mean as much to me as their ability to drive a race car. If you're not a good person, I won't bill for you. And I never would. As much as I loved watching Jeff Stevens race, he was my hero when he was behind the seat of that super or his modifieds or his anything. Mm. Jeff Stevens was my hero. And I do not know how many times I refused right in that shop door up there. Jeff, I love you like a brother. And that's the way we're going to keep it. Because if you and I had to work together for 10 minutes on your race car, we'd kill each other. Mm. <laughs> that's what I told him. I wouldn't do it. What about Homer Drew? Homer was the greatest. He was the greatest driver that I ever built for. And does that include 12-time Beach Ridge champion Ralph Cusack, who later uh, owned the Speedway? Homer was this much over Ralph Cusack. And I think the world, I thought the world of mm-hmm. Ralph. I really did. Yeah. Ralph and I were good friends until he became the owner of the Speedway. Can I ask about, Go ahead. about Homer for a second? Sure. Yep. And when 1973 dawned, the yep. open comp circuit in Maine was really blossoming. Mm-hmm. And Jerry bought that former Z28 Camaro from Joe DaCosta. Of Joe DaCosta mm-hmm. and Eddie Janes and turned that into the J2 mm-hmm. and you built the power plant, mm-hmm. the power plants for that car. <laughs> so Took 10 of them to keep him going. Just 
retrospect for 1973, that car won six out of eight open comp, 100 laps. 100 lap races. At Oxford Plain Speedway on pavement. One July 4th weekend at Speedway 95, 100 lapper up there. Came down in August of 73, one on the dirt at Beach Ridge. The wind's open. Yeah, Ottawa's 100. Yep. Ooh, that's a big race. And at the same time, Goodwin also had power built for the Jerry Seavey Homer Drew number 22B class. And it's that count won multiple times that season on dirt. So maintaining different engines in two completely different classes, different track surfaces that had successful years, and that J2 won enough races that it set a record that'll probably never be equaled. Mm. That's right. Well, you mentioned the different surfaces. Drag racing also comes into your picture as well. Okay, one of the one of the things, and I know myself probably better than any of you people do, uh, and I know that I can get very nervous and jittery, and it affects my performance. And in order to be a highly acclaimed, highly uh, successful race car driver on asphalt in a circle track situation, You've got to have it all together, and you can't be taken away from it by emotion. And I'm a very passionate, emotional person. No, I uh, <clears throat> I never would have made a driver because I'm not emotionally uh, stable enough to do it. What strikes me about that that take is the you know the, a big part of your life is teaching as well. And it almost takes the mind of a teacher or an educator to say, you know what, I'd love to do this, but maybe this isn't the best place for me within my, you know, my part of the world. What drew you to be an educator? I knew what I wanted to do when I was four, five years old. When did you start teaching? I started teaching in 1966. Okay. 67. So I'm sorry, I, I guess I got a little off track. So what brought you into wanting to be an educator? Because I knew I could teach industrial arts well, and I did. How does someone teach industrial arts well? It doesn't seem like it comes with a manual. No, it doesn't. You have to be willing to size up the people, uh, the majority of the students you're dealing with, and their intellect level. I wanted to have something to do with an area where I could appeal to the students. When you say that you were, uh, you, you were in charge of, of sizing up the students, the, the students in that age group are very impressionable. Yeah, but you've got to analyze the background of these kids and where they came from in order to understand what they will relate to. I think my question makes you talk about yourself, which I know you don't like, but I'm going to ask anyway, because I've heard from other people, this is documentation, that uh, Mr. Hannaford taught me about X, Y, and Z, but he taught me more about life. How much did life come into your, uh, your education? That's what it's all about. It's about life. It's not about education. Anybody can pick up a book and read a book. Hmm. If you take that parts of that book, though, that are important to convey, if you can attach that to something that the kids will understand and want to learn about, then you've got them right by the pound of your hands. Yeah. 
How did you figure out students that way? Well, my mother was my first grade teacher when I was six years old. And she had a unique ability to size up every kid in her class and find some way that she could appeal to them. And if you can find that focus focal point for a youngster so that you can get in their head and talk with them, you've got it made. In stage number two, we'll get Goodwin's side of a hot-button issue in southern Maine to this day, Beach Ridge and the now-defunct Modified Division. He threw out the association that had been there since J.B. McConnell built the place in 1948 and started racing in 49. That group had been there to work with the owner to make the whole thing work together. Goodwin goes west, finds success, and we tackle that and more on the next Open Trailer Podcast. See ya.